Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, the U.S. intensifies its airstrike campaign in the Mideast, and a bipartisan group of senators finalize a border security deal. We'll speak exclusively with Kirsten Sinema, one of the chief negotiators. The U.S. retaliates following last week's attack on a U.S. base in Jordan that killed three service members, the deadliest of 167 attacks on our forces since mid-October and launches more strikes on Houthi targets in Yemen. We'll have the latest from the region, and we'll hear from White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Plus the heads of the House Intelligence Committee, Ohio Republican Mike Turner, and Connecticut Democrat Jim Himes will also be here. And we'll talk with the former head of Central Command, General Frank McKenzie. Until recently, he oversaw U.S. forces in the region. But first, in a rare television interview, Arizona's independent senator, Kirsten Sinema, makes her case for a bipartisan immigration and border security bill. She's got all the details of the Senate proposal. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We've got a lot to get to with the escalating tensions in the Mideast, but we begin with another challenge facing this country. How to secure the nation's borders and improve our broken immigration system. There is near universal recognition among Americans that the current immigration process is broken, and Congress has struggled for years to come up with a solution that will gain enough support to become law. The House has passed a bill that is a non-starter in the Senate, and we spoke with Speaker Mike Johnson about that earlier this year. But a bipartisan group of senators is expected to unveil their proposal later today. That bill would allow the president to shut down asylum processing during spikes in illegal crossings. It also gives the Department of Homeland Security the ability to expedite deportations. The proposal limits access to asylum and requires cases to be reviewed within six months. Right now, there is no time limit, and many cases languish for years before they're processed. Joining us now from Scottsdale is one of the chief negotiators of that deal, Arizona Independent Senator Kirsten Sinema. And Senator, we want to note this is your first official appearance on a Sunday show, and we thank you for being with us today. Well, good morning, Margaret. It's great to be with you. So you are one of the very few people who know the intricate details of this deal since the text is still not public. But to execute this plan, are you going to need more than the $14 billion that President Biden has asked Congress for? Well, you know, that's really a question for the heads of our Appropriations Committee, who are in the final stages of putting uh, this bill together this afternoon. My job was to lead the negotiations for the border policy changes that we so desperately need. And that's why I've worked with Senator Lankford and Senator Murphy over the last four months to create workable policy 
that makes dramatic but needed changes to both our asylum system and border policy. You will need likely more personnel or funding to, to execute this, but in mm -hmm. going to the specifics, you have said publicly you are ending catch and release. That's that practice of detaining migrants and then releasing them with the promise of a future court date. How will your plan work? Well, I'm so glad you've asked that question because look, we've all seen the images on television of what's happening in Lukeville, Arizona and in Southern Texas where large numbers of migrants are approaching the border and being processed and kind of released into the country, sometimes with a piece of paper called a notice to appear, where they may see a judge in five, seven, 10 years, no one knows. Our law changes that and ends the practice of catch and release. So when people approach the border and say they want to enter our country to seek asylum, they will go into one of two situations. First short-term detention, which means we take them into custody, and we actually do an interview right then and there to determine if they meet the standard for asylum. For individuals who do not meet that standard, which by the way, Margaret, is most of the migrants who are coming mm -hmm. to our country right now, they'll be swiftly returned to their home country. And for folks that we can't detain, like families, for instance, we'll ensure that we're supervising them over the course of just three months and conduct that interview with that new higher standard requiring them to shore more proof early on about whether or not they qualify for asylum and return them to their country if they do not have the evidence or the proof that they qualify for asylum. So, so we'll no longer have people just entering the country and maybe going to court in the next seven or 10 years. Mm -hmm. Instead, we'll make swift justice. Folks who do qualify for asylum will be on a rapid path six months or less to start a new life in America. And those who do not qualify will quickly be returned to their home countries. So for those who are impoverished, for example, and say they're just coming to America to have a better life, they're in search of the American dream, they won't qualify, right? They will be turned away? That's right, Margaret. Right now, individuals who want to come to America just to get a better life or to seek the American dream, to find work, those are what we call economic migrants. They are not permitted to enter the country whenever they would like. And our new law will ensure that they can't get into the country, that they won't get that notice to appear, they will not be allowed in through the border ports of entry or between ports of entry, like we see down in Lukeville. They will be turned away and sent back to their home countries because they currently are exploiting the asylum system that's being really managed by the cartels. We're ending that system. We're ending that loophole and ensuring that they cannot enter through that manner. Uh, well, there is some concern about Democrat from Democrats that those individuals turned away would then in turn be exploited if they're pushed back into Mexico and somehow mistreated. How are you going to alleviate Democratic concerns about that? Well, that's an important question, Margaret. The reality is, is that for the last several years, cartels have used this loophole to exploit the system, telling folks from Latin and South America and really all over the world that they can come to America, claim asylum, and then gain access to the country. We are going to end that process by ending catch and release and requiring folks who do come to claim asylum to actually have their asylum claims determined quickly and fairly. And that will provide a disincentive for individuals to come to this country, really mm -hmm. sacrificing so much in their lives for a path that no longer can be exploited. So we believe that by quickly implementing this system, individuals who come for economic reasons will learn very quickly that this is not a path to enter our country and will not take the sometimes dangerous or treacherous track to our border. So you have said previously that the Biden administration does bear some responsibility for this crisis and they should be held accountable for not implementing existing laws. So what actions are you asking the president to take independent of Congress? And if you, if, as you say, wasn't implementing existing law, what would be different with your new version of the law? Well, Margaret, our law actually requires the administration to implement these tools. So much has been talked about um, with the, as you know, the number of 5,000 people a day, right? We've all heard um, misinformation and frankly, just kind of rumors 
saying, well, the administration doesn't have to shut down the border until you get to 5,000 crossers a day. Well, that's not true. First of all, our law ends catch and release. But when too many people approach the border asking to come in seeking asylum, we're now mandating that the government actually shut down the border if those numbers get to 5,000 a day. Mm -hmm. But we're permitting the government to actually shut down the border when it only gets to 4,000 approaches a day. And the reason we're doing that is because we want to be able to shut down the system when it gets overloaded. So we have enough time to process those asylum claims, whether it's through detention or whether it's through supervision, like for families. We want enough time for the government to be able to process these asylum claims and then turn folks away who do not qualify while settling people who do qualify. So we've placed provisions in the law that mandate the enforcement of each of these provisions of our law mm -hmm. and require the Biden administration and any future administration to actually implement this. So we're requiring it, not permitting it. And that's a key difference from existing immigration law. Okay. And you just, uh, I want to underscore your fact check there because the claim has been repeated, including by Donald Trump, that there would be a minimum of 5,000 people let in per day. And you just explained why that is not factually accurate. But it has also been um, echoed by the Speaker of the House, um, Mike Johnson. I know you have said you have a line of communication open with him. He said on another network this morning, individual senators call, give me tips, and offered things that are going on in the room. But he says he was left out of this entire process. Has he assured you that he's going to put this bill on the floor? You know, I don't know what Speaker Johnson will do when this bill gets out of the Senate. But what I do know is that for five months, my Republican colleagues have demanded, and I think rightfully so, that we address this border crisis as part of a national security package. I agree. The crisis on our border is a national security threat. And this week, the Senate will begin to take action on a large national security package that includes a realistic, pragmatic, and the strongest solution to our border crisis in my lifetime. Now, as you know, Margaret, I was born and raised near the border here in Arizona. And so more than anyone, I know how important this is to securing our national security. So I feel confident that when our bill passes through the Senate and gets to the House, members of the House, including Speaker Johnson, will have had ample opportunity to read, understand the bill, and ask questions and watch our mm -hmm. debate in the Senate. And then they get to make a choice. Do you want to secure the border? Do you believe Mike Johnson can be persuaded? In other words, I hear you saying he hasn't told you no. You know, I think everyone has an opportunity to be persuaded. And by persuaded, Margaret, I simply mean read the legislation, <laughs> understand how it works. These are powerful new tools that allow any administration, this one and future administrations, to actually gain control of the border. By changing the asylum system so that cartels can no longer exploit it, and by giving a powerful new tool to the government that requires them to shut down the border during times of high traffic, when too many people are asking to come into the country to seek asylum, we are giving tools to this administration and future administrations to actually gain control of the border. This is an incredibly powerful tool. And I believe that when folks have the opportunity to read the legislation mm -hmm. and hear from groups like Border Patrol agents, ICE agents throughout the country, they will see how important this tool is for our administration to have. The reality is, Margaret, that while the current administration does bear yeah. responsibility for mishandling the border, we have to give new legal tools to the administration and hold them accountable to implement them By in March? order to stop this crisis. I'm sorry? What's the timeline? By March? Because uh, uh, Senator mm. Graham said this isn't going to happen quickly. You know, I don't control the timeline. That's a question for the leadership in the Senate. Mm -hmm. What I do have the ability to control is what I've done over the last four months, yeah. which is work in good faith with Senators Lankford and Senators Murphy to craft a real solution to the border. The first one in my lifetime, and that's what I'll be focused on, is making sure that colleagues in both the House and the Senate understand what this law will do 
and see the difference it will make for our border security. When we last spoke back in May, uh, you told me that immigration was one of the most important issues for you, potentially in a, a second term. You have until April to decide whether to run for re-election. You would need about 42,000 signatures uh, to qualify for that three-way race. Have you decided what's holding you back if you haven't? Well, I understand you have to ask that question, Margaret, but I think folks across Arizona and the country know that when I decide I'm gonna work on something that's important for our state and for our nation, I stay focused on it. And I think that the endless questions about politics and elections are really exhausting. And it's mm -hmm. what makes Americans really hate politics. So what I've committed to my constituents is to stay laser focused on the policy, on actually solving real problems. And that's what I've shown that I do in the work that I do in the United States Senate. And it's what I'll stay focused on in the coming weeks as we seek to pass this legislation and make a real difference for the lives of Arizonans. Yeah. You know, Margaret, each time I visit border communities in my state and I hear from folks, whether it's in Bisbee or Yuma or down right. in Lukeville, mm -hmm. they're not asking about elections. They're asking about their everyday lives yes. because this crisis faces us every single day. It's not just and a television show for us. It's our daily lives. Understood. Senator, thank you for walking us through the details. And we hope you'll be back with us. All of you, stick with us. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We're joined now by White House National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan. Uh, Jake, it's good to have you back here with us. Um, the White House described Friday's response as a multi-tiered plan, not one and done. Is this an open-ended military campaign and how are you going to define success? Well, uh, it's true, Margaret, that what happened on Friday was the beginning, not the end of our response, and that there will be more steps, some seen, some perhaps unseen, uh, all in an effort to send a very clear message that when American forces are attacked, when uh, Americans are killed, as three service members tragically were at Tower 22, we will respond and we will respond forcefully and we will respond in a sustained way. I would not describe it as some open-ended military campaign. We have a concept of how we intend to respond. I'm not going to telegraph it on this show, but we will execute that concept uh, with the kind of professionalism that only the U.S. military can bring to bear. So the U.S. officially has not assessed that Tehran directed the attack, but has Tehran done anything to rein in the militias that they fund and arm? Well, we know that Iran is behind these militia groups. They train them, they fund them, they arm them, as, as your question suggests, uh, and they do have influence with them. And I can't sit here today and tell you that Tehran has shifted its policy. Uh, what I can tell you is what the United States' approach is going to be, which is that if we continue to see threats and attacks from these militia groups, we will respond to them and we will hold those responsible accountable. 
There are reportedly civilian casualties in Iraq and in Syria as a result of these strikes. Uh, does the U.S. assess that any of those hit in these strikes were actually Iranian Al-Quds Force personnel, or did the fact that this was so telegraphed in advance give those personnel time to go to ground? Well, first of all, Margaret, on the telegraphed point, President Biden has been saying for months that he would respond to attacks. We have responded to previous attacks. Mm -hmm. And when three service members were killed, of course, Iran knew that the United States would respond. So the idea that somehow this was telegraphed, uh, I think, is a bit more of a political talking point than, uh, than a reality. Secondly, the targets that we hit, we believe with conviction, were valid military targets. They were ammunition depots and command and control centers. They were the instruments that Iranian-backed Shia militia groups were using to attack American forces. We are looking at uh, the casualties, who precisely was killed. I don't have anything to report to you this morning publicly on that, uh, but we will continue to make our assessments. But no one, for example, in IRGC leadership, in Iranian leadership, no one of significance was targeted. As I said, uh, we are continuing to assess the battle damage, and uh, when we are prepared to share that publicly, we'll do so. I am not prepared to do that with you today. Okay. Um, Jake, half of U.S. adults, according to the AP, say Israel's military campaign in Gaza has gone too far, and 31% approve of Biden's handling of the conflict. At what point is this open-ended Israel conflict in Gaza, not just a political problem, but a national security one for the United States to be so closely associated with the Netanyahu government's war, with the civilian casualties that we've seen to date and the starvation of women and children in Gaza. Well, first, Margaret, uh, I'm glad you put the question in those terms because, you, you know, we don't design our policy towards Israel or Gaza or the Middle East based on politics. We do it based on the national security interests of the United States. And we've been clear from the beginning that we believe that Israel has a right to respond to the horrific attacks of October 7th and to deal with the threat that Hamas continues to pose to Israel as it asserts that it wants to conduct another October 7th and then another one until Israel no longer exists. But we've been equally clear that we have to look out for and respond to the immense and terrible suffering of the Palestinian people. And that means pressing Israel on issues related to the humanitarian assistance that we have helped unlock and get into the Gaza Strip, and there needs to be much more of it. Secretary Blinken is on his way to the region as we speak, and this will be a top priority of his when he sees the Israeli government, that uh, the needs of the Palestinian people are something that are going to be front and center in the U.S. approach, and that we want yeah. to ensure that they are getting access to life-saving food, medicine, water, shelter, and we'll continue to press until that is done. But it's still not the degree to which you are asking for. Um, today, Prime Minister Netanyahu said Israel will not agree to a deal that is related to the release of terrorists. His national security minister, Ben Gavir, gave an interview to The Wall Street Journal saying he'd oppose any deal with Hamas that would end the war or free Palestinian prisoners and said Donald Trump would be better for Israel than Joe Biden. Does Benjamin Netanyahu have control of his government? And are these right-wing ministers risking blowing up a hostage deal that the United States is trying to put together? Look, I'm going to let the Israeli government and Israeli politicians speak for themselves. They certainly have no trouble doing so, as you just related. We're only going to speak for ourselves. And from our perspective, a hostage deal that brings out the hostages, including the American hostages, that gets a sustained pause in hostilities so that life-saving assistance can more easily get uh, to the Palestinian people. This is in the national security interest of the United States, and we're going to press for it relentlessly, as the president has done, including recently in calls with the leaders of Egypt and Qatar, the two countries that are, are central brokers in this effort. So it is a paramount priority for us. The Israeli government can answer whether it's a paramount priority for them. And depending on that answer, they'll also have to answer to the Israeli people. Well, do I understand you saying there then that Israel's government has not signed off fully on the proposal that the U.S. is backing? Uh, I know Qatar has said they're waiting on Hamas. 
No, no, you haven't. You didn't hear me correctly. Israel has, in fact, put forward a proposal. And as Qatar has indicated publicly, uh, the ball is in Hamas's court at this time. Okay. Because this minister was threatening politically the prime minister in regard to a hostage deal and saying he would vote against it. Well, right. Uh, there seems to be obviously an ongoing debate spilling out in public within the Israeli government. And yeah. again, I'm not going to speak to that debate. They have to decide for themselves and they'll have to work through their own political system. Um, and do you stand by your statement you made on this show previously that Palestinians in Gaza have a right to return to their homes? That's also an issue of conflict right now. I do stand by my statement. It's not Jake Sullivan's statement, that's a statement of administration policy. Secretary Blinken has laid it out now in full. Uh, we do not want to see a circumstance in which Israel occupies Gaza or where uh, there is uh, an effort to permanently displace Palestinians from their homes. Jake Sullivan, thank you for your time this morning. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We turn now to our Holly Williams in Erbil for more on the escalating conflict in the Mideast. The U.S. says the strikes on Yemen last night targeted Houthi missile systems and launches, as well as weapons storage and radars used by the group. A spokesman for the Houthis, who are supported by Iran, said the strikes will not deter them. The group says its assault on commercial and naval ships in the Red Sea, which started in November, is an expression of solidarity with Palestinians under bombardment in Gaza. The strikes in Yemen come just one day after the U.S. says it hit 85 targets here in Iraq and in neighboring Syria that are used by Iranian forces and militia groups backed by Iran. There's been an uptick in those militia groups targeting the U.S. military in this region since the Israel-Hamas war began, with around 170 attacks using rockets and drones. The U.S. strikes reportedly killed around 40 people, including both fighters and civilians, and were retaliation for the deaths of three American soldiers in a drone attack a week ago at a military outpost in Jordan. There are around 2,500 U.S. troops based here in Iraq and around 900 over the border in Syria. Iran called America's response a, quote, strategic mistake. But the question now is whether the militia groups it backs will ratchet things up even further. When we interviewed Iran's foreign minister, Hussein Amir Abdullahian, in November, he claimed the militia groups in Iraq and Syria make their own independent calculations and decisions. There have long been fears that the Israel-Hamas war could widen into a regional conflict, likely involving Iran's proxies. Ironically, just a few years ago, the US and the Iran-backed militia groups were essentially on the same side in a different conflict, the war against ISIS. Now, the US appears to be trying to carefully calibrate its response. On the one hand, it doesn't want a further escalation of violence here in the Middle East. But on the other, it doesn't want to risk emboldening its enemies. That's Holly Williams in Irville. We turn now to the leaders of the House Intelligence Committee, Republican Mike Turner, who's in Dayton, Ohio this morning, and Democrat Jim Himes, who's in Stamford, Connecticut. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Uh, Chair Turner, the Speaker of the House uh, criticized the Biden administration for public hand-wringing, excessive signaling ahead of these strikes, saying that it undercuts the U.S. ability to put a stop to the attacks. Do you accept the explanation that you heard from Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor? Right. So, you know, Margaret, I think that they have confusion among their goals and objectives. They keep shifting as to what they're trying to achieve with the attacks and really what their policy is with respect to response. You know, that Secretary Austin, Secretary of Defense said that when Americans are attacked, we will respond. However, that's not true. They've tolerated over 160 of these attacks. They've been carrying certainly out strikes these against attacks, some of them. The, well, in, in minor areas, nothing to actually counter what is occurring here. And that's the issue. But you also heard with Jake Sullivan, then he said, when when there are attacks or deaths of American service members, we will respond. He was he was coupling it to both, which is what they've done here. But this is the problem, Margaret. They keep saying that they want to, um, you know, uh, retaliate 
But then they say it's about deterrence. Then they say it's about diminishing capabilities. Those are all different goals and objectives, and they're not doing any of those. We all know that this is just about Iran. These are all franchises of Iran. Uh, and, the, and the administration has no policy with respect to Iran, how to diminish their capability, diminish these attacks, and diminish their nefarious ac activities in the Middle East. Congressman uh, Himes, uh, how, how do you respond to that? And I know you have said that you hoped these strikes would cause significant pain to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, Jake Sullivan says they, they still don't know uh, if they were able to take out any personnel from the IRGC. Yeah, yeah, look, Margaret, um, you know, I respectfully disagree with uh, Chairman Turner. Uh, what needs to happen here is exceedingly clear. There are two things that must happen. Number one, uh, we must make it very clear to the Iranian and to the Iranian-backed militias that attacks on U.S. Uh, troops on U.S. assets will be enormously expensive, enormously expensive. Uh, and I think we are in the process of doing that. And number two, the other objective, of course, is we don't want to go to war with Iran. That, by the way, is an objective that Iran shares. They don't want to go to war with us. So there is a certain amount of ambiguity in this. And what you do is you listen to what the other side's red lines are. Uh, the Iranians, I think, would regard, for example, an attack on their territory, uh, certainly the killing of civilians inside Iran as a red line that they would then be forced to react to. Uh, the chairman was just not right when he said that they hadn't responded, that the administration hadn't responded to the many, many attacks, the 160 attacks. Those attacks were proportional. Um, the Iranians, in a dark way, got lucky uh, in, uh, uh, in, in their ability in Tower 22 uh, to take out three Americans. Uh, that obviously requires a much more dramatic response than the earlier attacks in which we didn't suffer casualties. And that, of course, is what uh, their militias in, Iran, in uh, Syria and Iraq have experienced over the course of the, uh, the last 24 hours and will continue to experience, I think, for the next couple of days. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think you're referring to the strikes on like January, I think it was January 3rd or January 24th that were militia, militia people targeted by the United States, but not the kind of B-1 bomber mission we just saw carried out on Friday. Um, Chair Turner. That's right. The B-1s come out when, right. uh, when Americans are killed. When right. they're not killed, the response is obviously going to be less dramatic. Right. But, but to the point, it hasn't deterred the continued tit-for-tat attacks, which by the way, Chair Turner, you would acknowledge those those were going on before October seventh. Those have been going, been going on for years. For some time, and this this administration has 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 responded in, incredibly poorly. You know, one is a result of the other. If you tolerate attacks, you are going to tolerate that you're going to have casualties. And the problem here is that the administration, back to goals and objectives, has no goal and objective. Iran pays no price when militias are attacked. The militias don't care. And when you diminish their capability for the, the moment that you've struck them, you haven't diminished their overall capability. These attacks are still going to happen. The administration needs two things, a real plan with respect to Iran and countering Iran in the area, but secondly, diminishing capacity to stop these attacks. We can't play defense forever. Our yeah. systems to protect our troops and our ships cannot continually respond to these attacks with 100% success. Tolerating the attacks, tolerates casualties. We need to diminish their capability and we need to take this problem to Iran. Uh, let me ask you, uh, Congressman Turner, uh, Speaker Johnson said he's putting forward a standalone Israel security bill for about $17.5 billion. You only have 219 Republicans in the House and one of them has already said he's not on board with this. This does not look like it has an easy path forward. What does this do to complicate all the other significant national security priorities that I know you support, like Ukraine? Isn't this just a political statement? Well, I'm very concerned about, about that strategy. I was very concerned when we did it last year, and they brought up a uh, Israel bill that was paid for. This one, importantly, does not have a, a pay for. Um, I think that we, we really have four significant um, national security threats. We have Asia, we have Ukraine, we have um, Israel and what's going on in the Middle East. And of course, we have our border. And right now, we've been proceeding on negotiations on those four. Uh, Ukraine has to be funded. Um, it, it has. We have to respond to Russian aggression or we will have a, a broader war there. Um, and also, you know, the, the atrocities that Russia has been undertaking in Ukraine need to be responded to. Of course, we have to respond and, and support Israel. And again, back to our activities in the area, we need to make certain that we're responding to the nefarious actions of Iran in the region. Uh, so I do think that all these are coupled.
And so that that would suggest you don't like the standalone bill strategy. Uh, I'm, I'm very concerned about this process. Now, the, yeah. the speaker has said openly that he fully supports the funding for Ukraine. Uh, we have to make certain that there is a path to, to do that. The Ukrainians yeah. are getting to the point where it's critical that the funding come through. Uh, and I certainly am looking forward to the, the speaker describing, if he's going to piecemeal this, how each of these pieces get yes. accomplished. And uh, Congressman Himes, Democrats may end up having to essentially deliver the votes to allow that to pass. I know you have said on another network, um, referencing these very, this very thin majority that the Republicans have and threats by some of the Republican members to oust the speaker, you linked his survival to whether he works with Democrats to pass Ukraine aid. Are Democrats offering Johnson protection here from his own party? Well, um, the move he's taken um, to offer an Israel-only deal is very dirty pool. It's an act of staggering bad faith. Why do I say that? Because, and, and, and Mike and I were in the Situation Room when the brand new speaker laid out for the National Security Advisor, the way we're going to do this is we're going to do a border deal as a condition to doing Ukraine aid. Uh, and then we'll do, you know, we'll, it'll be a package with Ukraine, uh, with Israel money, uh, and with Indo-PACOM money. That's for, for, for East Asia. Uh, before the wording of a bipartisan uh, uh, border deal was even available to anybody, uh, at a time in which uh, Mitch McConnell was saying, we will never get a border deal that is better than this one. Mike and I both heard him say that in the cabinet room. Uh, the speaker said it's dead on arrival. It will right. not happen. So uh, I don't have quite Mike's optimism here. I think what's happening here is that the speaker is taking a move to get Israel aid done, which we all support, I, I, most of us support, I shouldn't say all, uh, but that will allow him to ultimately not do a border deal because there are Republicans, Mike not, Turner not amongst them, uh, who would rather that problem be an issue in November and that it not be solved. And there are roughly 50%, we know this from the votes, mm -hmm. of Republicans who oppose Ukraine aid. So as much as it is important for us to provide aid to Israel, this is the first step in getting aid to Israel at the expense of any aid to Ukraine and at the expense of a, a generational opportunity to actually get a border immigration deal done. So your offer essentially to protect Speaker Johnson from a motion to vacate is off the table. Well, no, step, step back to that question. First of all, I didn't offer to protect the speaker. I made the point in the uh, cabinet room that we were all agreeing on the importance of Ukraine aid and the importance of a good border deal. The president said he will shut down the border. He will do a big deal. So the challenge becomes, how do we position the two congressional leaders who matter in the House, Hakeem Jeffries and Speaker Johnson, who I pointed out was in a very precarious position? Yes. How do we position them to get to yes? And the reality is that with a whatever two vote majority, um, anything that gets done in the House of Representatives, anything mm -hmm. will get done with some Democratic help. So how do we tee up the position to move forward in a bipartisan way? And here's the challenge for the speaker. Any bipartisan activity, certainly activity that requires a lot of Democrats, puts him in great peril. And of course, he thinks about that. Right. Um, Chair Turner, you called the border the most significant present national security threat in previous interviews. I know you haven't yes. seen the text, but you just heard Senator Sinema lay out in great detail what she has helped put together. Did you like what you heard? Well, I, you know, I think those are, are certainly important elements and we do have to, I mean, in any instance, we have to, to see the bill. And I just want to compliment Jim Himes uh, one more time. You know, we work on a very bipartisan basis and, you know, despite our disagreements on the administration's Iran policy, but you heard him say, this is really a very difficult process to get all of this done. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, over 300 members have always voted for these uh, these funding packages. Everyone recognizes these are national security threats, and we need to find a path to get these done. Now, on the border, you know, uh, FBI Director Ray has said that we have the highest threat right now for the possibility of a terrorist attack on U.S. soil as a result of the open border and the people who have come into the United States. We don't know where they are. Some of which you have. Um, allegiance to uh, international terrorist groups and organizations. The, the FBI director himself has said that. I think that you know that certainly should be part of the impetus for everyone to look to. How do we resolve this issue? In other words, you can't wait for the election to be over. There should be a bill voted on, and you're open to voting for this one. 
Yes, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> this, this is an issue that needs to be addressed now. And I look forward to reading the text and seeing what, what's in the bill. Uh, and this certainly is one of the highest priorities. And uh, Congressman Himes, uh, there are some congressional Democrats, including from the Hispanic Caucus, who are already complaining about this, even though the text is not out. Do you think Democrats will ultimately come out to support this bill the White House negotiated? Um, I do, Margaret, and, and you're exactly right. And I've, I've, I've heard, you know, we have a general sense of what's in the bill. And yes, there is dramatic concern uh, in the, uh, let's call it the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. But the president has said, and Mike and I heard this three times in the cabinet room, that he will go big. Uh, it is clear on a bipartisan basis, if you have eyes, you understand that we have a crisis at the southern border and it needs to be fixed. And so the challenge here is, and I go back to what I told you previously, how do we put the two leaders in a position to do a very hard thing? Because immigration border deals are very hard. There's a reason we haven't done one in 40 or 50 years. They're very, very hard. And again, I'm not looking necessarily to protect Mike Johnson, but Mike Johnson is a very precariously situated Speaker of the House. And so the question is, how do we get instincts like Mike Turner's uh, to prevail in the Republican Party? And how do we get enough Democratic votes uh, on, on, on the left to make sure that we take advantage of this truly generational opportunity? Again, don't listen to me about this. Mitch McConnell in mm -hmm. the cabinet room said, if we had Donald Trump as president, a Republican Senate and a Republican House, we would not get this deal. So right. my hope is that the two parties can come together to get it done. Well, we will see, uh, and gentlemen, we appreciate you speaking in this bipartisan fashion and joining us both today. We'll be right back. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. For some analysis on the situation in the Middle East, we turn now to the former head of U.S. Central Command, General Frank McKenzie. He was in charge of U.S. forces in the Middle East for three years under the Trump and Biden administrations. Welcome back. Uh, Good to be here, Mark. General... How would you assess the impact of the strikes so far, which you just heard National Security Advisor Sullivan say is just the beginning? I, I think uh, that's pretty accurate. I don't think we know yet. I think it's going to require more work. And I think we do need to have an understanding of what we want as an end state. For, for me as the operational commander, back when I was in command, it would be that they cease attacks on our bases and, and, and operating positions in Iraq and Syria. That's a pretty clear end state. Uh, you know, the problem is um, there's a lot of talk about Iraq, Iran actually not giving the order for this specific attack. And there's some truth to that because around 2020, Iran began to give blanket clearance to these groups to attack United States positions in Iraq and Syria. So they now operate under a, a sort of a procedure where there's no mother may I. They have the opportunity to generate these attacks without directly going back to Iran. And while Iran is certainly ultimately complicit because they provide the weapons, they provide the training, they provide the funding, in some cases they probably provide some targeting assistance. It's hard sometimes to find that track back for a specific attack because of the way Iran has ingeniously uh, designed their command and control process. Mm -hmm. uh, that is important context on the question of whether they have control or not. Um, you, before this devastating attack that killed three American service people, you were on the record in a Wall Street Journal editorial saying um, the U.S., you referenced the president saying the U.S. doesn't want to escalate. And you said, unfortunately, it is the U.S. that is being deterred, not Iran and its proxies. To reset deterrence, we must apply violence Tehran understands. What would that look like? Margaret, and I, yeah. 
I, uh, first of all, I still stand by those words. I think this particular campaign we're on, we've done two things that I think undercut us. First of all, there's a continual reference uh, in, in our policy statements about not wanting to escalate. Look, I, I agree, escalation is dangerous, but if the greatest fear is escalation, we should leave. We can reduce the, the danger of escalation to zero if we leave. Clearly, we have higher priorities than preventing escalation. So we, we should recognize that. The second part is, we have explicitly taken Iran itself off the list of potential targets in this campaign. I am not advocating for striking Iran. I am advocating that they need to be in the space of possible targets so that, they, that, so that they're held at risk. What happens when we say, well, we're going to strike targets in Iraq and Syria, we're not going to strike targets in Iran, at least kinetically targets in, in Iran. That gives them aid and comfort. That's not a good thing to do. And what we want to do is induce in their minds, in their cognitive space, a concern about continuing on this path and what it might mean to them. Look, Iranian foreign policy is built on three things. It's built on preservation of the theocratic regime, number one, above all others. Number two, the destruction of the state of Israel. Number three, the ejection of the United States from the region. Mm -hmm. Number one is a point of strength for them, but also a point of weakness. And I believe we are consciously neglecting it in this campaign. Four years ago, they were forces under your command who killed Iran's Quds Force commander Qasem Soleimani when he was in Iraq from Iran. His successor doesn't seem to be quite as influential. And there are some pointing to the leader of Hezbollah now as choreographing the militias. Um, is this the outcome you expected when the Trump administration decided to take Soleimani off the battlefield? Well, uh, Margaret, it's important to understand we took Soleimani off the battlefield because he felt, we felt, he was preparing an imminent attack on, the, on our embassy and other locations in the Middle East. So certainly there were long-term considerations, but he was a clear and present immediate danger, and we took steps to, 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 uh, to remove him from the battlefield because of that. Now, what's developed after that? You're right. The, uh, the IRGC Quds Force has not been able to get into Iraq and bring people together as Soleimani was because his successor is a much weaker uh, military leader than, than Soleimani. I, it's unclear to me that, uh, that Nasrullah, the leader of Lebanese Hezbollah, is filling that space. I think the most interesting thing about Lebanese Hezbollah and Nasrullah is the fact he has not chosen to engage in large-scale conflict with Israel right now because of what's going on down in Gaza. And I think that's, that's important to look at. It's like the dog that doesn't bark in the night. That can be important. He's instead chosen to hold, hold back to observe the situation. And I think that's an important thing that we should continue to, we should continue to take a look at because they're the largest non-state military entity in the world with thousands of weapons that could cause great pain to Israel. On the other hand, Israel has vast resources they could apply against Lebanese Hezbollah should this war uh, ensue. And I don't think LH wants that war. Now they may be, they may be influencing events in uh, Syria and Iraq. That's just not known to me at this time. I think it's more of a hodgepodge of efforts uh, there, but I do believe ultimately Iran is clearly behind it. U.S. intelligence estimates Israeli forces have killed about 20 to 30 percent of Hamas fighters since October. That is far short of destroying Hamas. Um, How do you judge the level of success of Israel's campaign? Well, it's very limited so far. You know, I think they set themselves a goal of removing the political echelon and the military leadership echelon of, uh, of Hamas when they went in. They have not been successful to date at doing either. And these campaigns are nonlinear, so they don't necessarily go from day to day. You could have a big breakthrough here and things could change suddenly on the ground. But I think the, the larger issue, at least for me, looking at it is, you have to have a theory for what it's gonna look like when it's over. Uh, you know, what's, what, what's gonna happen in Gaza? And we've had some people that have talked about it earlier on the show today. And I think it's important to consider that. You need, you need a vision of an end state when you begin a military campaign, because everything you do then subtracts or adds to your ability to get mm -hmm. to that point. And I would argue that needs to be something like a two-state solution. Mm -hmm. uh, you're gonna need help from the Arab nations uh, in the region to go in there and, and, and yeah. do something in, uh, in Gaza. I think Israeli occupation would be the least desirable of all outcomes. General McKenzie, thank you for your expertise. We'll be back in a moment. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. 
Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. President Biden won the South Carolina primary yesterday with over 96% of the vote in the state that helped revive his campaign four years ago. That's it for us today. Thank you all for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, the leaders of the House Intel Committee, Republican Mike Turner, and Democrat Jim Himes, and former CENTCOM Commander General Frank McKenzie. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.